begin reading in Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning. We are continuing a series that we started two weeks ago titled Unconquered. I want to be very, very clear right at the start, uh, despite the fact uh, that FSU is undefeated since I moved to town, and uh, despite the fact that God seems to be stirring and doing cool things, that when we say unconquered in the series of Acts, we're not trying to say that any one person has a claim to invincibility. There is no denomination on this earth, no leader, no gathering of people, no, no place, no system, no society that is, above, that is above being at some point destroyed and done away with because God is not in our debt. He does not need any of us. When we say unconquered, what we're saying is the truth as it is in Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, here's what we're saying. History has shown that the work of Jesus Christ was not in vain. Could never be in vain. Does that make sense? What happens in Acts, what becomes unconquered is the gospel. And in so much as we as a church or we as a people or we individually are committed to the work of a Christ whose life was not in vain, then God will sustain and bless and grow his truth. That's what we're getting at with unconquered. We are at a point now at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 when God reveals himself in fullness in the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing point in history, and we want to be ushered in there. So would you read with me? I'm going to start first verse, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? mean. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. God, would you send your spirit so that we might understand what this means? And not only send your spirit so that we might understand what this means, but would you reawaken in us? Would you stir in us a new appreciation, a new wonder, a new astonishment? To cry out again, what does this mean? In the here, in the now, in the present, for our sufferings and our trials, for our friends, for our lostness and confusion. God, what does your self-giving in the Holy Spirit mean? I pray for those who are far off and lost, those who are in their sins. Will they see what a grace it is to be made new, to be forgiven God, I pray that for many, they would say, in in this room and in Midtown and in Tallahassee, many would say, what does this mean? It means forgiveness and freedom and joy and life. And God, I ask that as we study your word, for those of us who are in Christ, and perhaps feeling a bit settled, pray God that you would awaken in us such wonder and longing and need for your spirit. God, we are desperate. Help us to learn together. We come under your word. What a gift this is to us to have your instruction, your voice, your ways laid out for us. So Holy Spirit, come. Open eyes. Dig ears. Soften hearts. We want to hear from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This point in history is really astounding. 
there is a sense in which this particular day rings, echoes, resounds through all of history in a way that is unbelievably powerful. It has bigger and more longer-lasting effects than when Edison first started to mess with electricity. Probably longer-lasting effects than when the first person rubbed sticks and stone and found fire. Longer-lasting, but just as transformative effects when the first guy said, what if we rounded this square? Maybe that would help, right? Maybe things would move easier. There are times when you look back over the course of history and you think to yourself, that was more transformative, more important, more vital than I ever realized. And I want you to note that when we start Acts chapter 2, there is a transition in our knowledge, our revelation, our understanding, our receiving of the fullness of God that is astounding. This is a turning point. This is an amazing turning point in history. The disciples lived through it in real time, and we've looked back over the course of thousands of years and seen the unbelievable effects of God coming and dwelling with his own. That's what's happening here at the beginning of this particular chapter. If I had to give one word for it, something I've just been praying and thinking through this week, I just kept coming back to this concept of full, fullness. You know, everybody's into like simple and clean and like Google, just a white page, and Apple not even have any colors on their box, right? And like just, just simple and clean. And I'm just thinking simple and clean, full. That's what this text is about. 2, 1 through 13 is fullness. That's what we're finding. And in a moment, we're going to describe Pentecost. It's a word that Christians use to throw around what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And I think this is an okay phrase. We're going to focus on two words. Pentecost is the power of the Holy Spirit revealed and received. Revealed and received. Now, we're not going to see those words specifically in the text, but hopefully they'll help us hang our hats somewhere, right? So when we come out of the day, you'll think, okay, I can see that at least to some extent. I want to focus on the Holy Spirit revealed and the Holy Spirit received. And that's partly what's starting to be unveiled for us in Acts chapter 2. I want you to think back just for a moment at where the disciples were just before this. Do you remember last week? Tick, talk, tick, talk, tick, talk. Jeopardy theme, if I could remember it. Something like that. Waiting game, right? Waiting. And I want you to think about the fact that the disciples are waiting for weeks on end, trying to figure out, Jesus, what is this all about? You're, you're triumphant, and then you're broken. You're gathered with us, and then you're betrayed. You're arrested, and then you're crucified, and you're dead, and then you're alive, and then you're ascended, and now we're waiting. And they're trying to make sense of it. And I want you to think about the waiting of the disciples as a microcosm of the greater picture of God's people waiting throughout all history. The story of God's interaction with his people has always been about him giving, him giving, him giving. And they are waiting Because Jesus has said, wait here and I will give. I will send. And God does give in fullness. It's not like he just starts to give in Acts chapter 2. You know the story of God, the story of God's people from the beginning has been about a God who initiates and and gives. It's about God wanting to share the love that he has eternally in himself, this triune relationship. And he gives by sending out a creating spirit through Jesus Christ and creates and gives a place to frolic and play and sweat and cry and eat mango. And God gives all that. And then more than that, he gives himself to a people. He calls Abram and he says, I'm going to give you the fullness of my blessings and those who oppose you will have the fullness of my cursings. This is God giving. And then generations later, he gives his rescue and his power to pull them from Egypt. And then more than that, he he gives to them the law. Through Moses at Sinai, he says, here are my words, here's my direction. I've not left you without a standard, without a command. And the commandments of God are not burdensome, Scripture tells us. They're a gift. It's God coming to us again and again and again. Here's more of who I am, revealing, revealing, and giving, and giving. That's the picture of God that we have. And then it's God giving prophets. 
sometimes strange people, men who act dead for days on end and do not eat, men who have sackcloth and ashes, and men who scream out, crazy judgments are coming. But in all of the prophets, God giving his word, voice, speaking into the chaos and confusion of life, this is a story of God giving people his object, himself, the gift, over and over and over again. And not just the prophets, but giving of himself perfectly. Planning from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would set aside the glory of heaven, the perfection of relationship with his Father, would take on human flesh and be born of a woman. Giving, giving, giving. And if it's not enough that he just comes and takes on frailty and flesh and wrinkles and aches and pains and charley horses in the middle of the night... Jesus gives his righteousness, obeying every single moment for you, knowing full well. You know that he was tempted in every way, like as us, yet without sin. And in every moment of his temptation, I couldn't say that, his temptation, every moment of it, giving a righteousness to you that you couldn't earn. All on your behalf, God revealing, God giving, every moment when it when he longed to sin, every moment when he longed to fail to temptation, obeying and walking in obedience so that you might have a righteousness that's not yours. And of course, if that wasn't enough, to simply come and take on frailty of human flesh and have cramps and cry and weep, not enough to obey perfectly, then the only innocent man that ever walked in the face of the earth says, it's not enough. I'm going to give my very life, body and blood, so that you might have freedom and forgiveness of sins. He absorbs the wrath of God, giving, giving, giving. And this is the message of the New Testament, isn't it? If God has given us all things in his son, how will he freely not give us everything else? God giving, 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 giving. And yet, and yet, the inexhaustible God, not fully given yet. The people of God knew him truly. They had his word. They saw his prophets They saw face to face. Jesus said, those who see me, see the Father. I and the Father are one. And yet there was still more to receive. There's still more to receive. And so the promise is coming, right? And everyone's waiting and they don't know what it's going to look like. What will it look like when the third person of the Trinity is given in fullness? When fullness comes. What will it look like when fullness comes? Comes. That's the question that they're, that they're after. And so we are going to see very, very clearly the Holy Spirit revealed in a whole bunch of ways to us. Revealed. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit comes? And that's partly what this passage is about. And I want to use the word revealed in a number of ways. You know, there's a lot of ways that you could think about it. Uh, one sense revealed in like there's a mystery that's being unveiled, Right? There's a sense in which how God was going to deal with sins. How could God be both just and a justifier of the ungodly? That's the question that Paul puts forth in Romans. And the cross is the answer, right? The cross, the mystery of godliness for us in the cross. And there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit coming is a mystery unveiled. Because Peter's going to tell us in the next part of chapter 2 that God has promised the Holy Spirit for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Wait tight. Because one day I will pour out my Spirit on you. And can you imagine what people thought? It's not as though the Holy Spirit was was empty and void and gone up to that point. The Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit had hovered over the waters and the Holy Spirit had, had given voice to the prophets and the Holy Spirit had rested in power upon kings and rulers. We read through Judges, all of the the amazing acts of strength that the judges did in war, always by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had descended like a dove from heaven on Jesus. And so it's not like the Spirit of God was ever not present. He was there, but he would come and he would go and he would be gone. And and now, and now, what does it mean for him to be poured out? So there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit's being revealed, like the mystery's finally being unveiled. After all this time, it's an unboxing, right? Also, revealed in the sense of his character, his ways. What is he like? Who is the Holy Spirit? This is God's revelation to us. How does he act and what does he do? And then finally, revealed in the sense, like, what does he cause? What happens when the Spirit of God comes? And that's partly what the rest of the book of Acts is all about. 
The rest of the book of Acts is an interaction between the Holy Spirit being revealed and coming and being received and then the outflow of that. What happens when the Holy Spirit's revealed and when he is received? So the first thing, we're just going to start with the first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is one of the first things that we see about the Holy Spirit, that God has a plan and there's timing in place. When the day of Pentecost arrived has a lot of connotations, sort of like when Jesus is spoken of in Galatians, when the fullness of time came. The son came and he was born of a woman. Jesus came born of a woman. When the day of Pentecost arrived. And a lot of people make a huge deal about when and why this specific day is chosen, right? The disciples are huddled mass. They're 120 and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And people say, oh, well, I know why it was Pentecost. I know why it was Pentecost. It was Pentecost because Pentecost, there was a Jewish tradition that the, the, law, the law of Moses was given 50 days after them coming to Mount Sinai. And so 50 days, Pentecost has behind that word this idea of 50, 50. It's 50 days from Passover, 50 days since Jesus girded himself with a cloth and washed his disciples' feet. And so people say, yeah, this is, a, this is a mirrored image. God is choosing Pentecost because 50 days, after 50 days at Sinai, he wrote the law on tablets, and now 50 days from Passover, he's writing the law of Christ in the hearts of men and women. And so there's symbolism there, they say. And other people would be like, no, that's not quite it. Pentecost was 50 days after the beginning of the harvest. The first, first fruits would begin to be harvested, and there was... 50 days of harvest. And so this is a harvest picture. And we know the very, very clearly what happens at the end of chapter 2, right? A mass harvest of souls. So God is sending his spirit because he's introducing the harvest, they might say. Pentecost is coming and, and God is going to gather from all nations the harvest of his own, right? And that's, that's fair. I think that's good. I think the best way probably to go about why does the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost, apart from because God said so, why does the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost is probably the good reason that the text gives us, right? There's another reason, I think, that is very clear that Luke lays out for us, and that's just the rest of verse 1. Why did the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost? Because they were all together in one place. The they there. Isn't that a fun sentence? The they there. The they there is not just the 120 disciples. We know the disciples were there, but what happens uniquely that Luke describes for us in the rest of this section of Acts chapter 2, is that the disciples are kind of huddled and quiet and chaotic and worried and fretful, right, in this room. And while they're there, the nations start to gather around them together. And bustling streets and different languages are heard out the window sill, right? And all of the nations, devout men gathering, it says, from all of these places across the globe. Now in verse 5, when it says, devout men from every nation under heaven... The New Testament specifically often uses all and every kind of language to describe the known world at the time. So probably just east of Israel, just east of Jerusalem, over to, say, maybe Spain. That's why Paul says, I preach the gospel and I want to preach it in, like, in all of the nations, right? And he really means, like, I want to get to Spain. And so we see Luke going through and giving us this sort of geography lesson. Anybody else love geography? That's, like, your thing? You're the kid who, like, you're driving in the car on a... On a you guys remember when they used to be printed maps? Did you guys know that? You guys know that? Some of you guys, are, you saw a printed map and you were like, that's so cool. Someone printed, someone printed Google Maps. <laughs> like, like, what a good idea. What if we took the maps on our phone and put them on a, right? Some of you have forgotten about that. Some of you are geography. I was a geography nerd for a little while. And what Luke does is he starts to give a little geography lesson. He starts in the east past Jerusalem and he starts nailing cities and regions and goes all the way across this huge swath. I was a geography nerd for a little while. In my elementary school, I, went to, I grew up in a town of 333 people in North Dakota, and so we had this massive elementary school, as you can imagine. And, um, and I became like, I was, for like one year, I was the geography kingpin. And I, you know, like I just knew it. I walked around dropping mad knowledge about rivers and plateaus. And uh, I dominated this little, this little class contest we had. So I won an invitation to go to the state geography B. This was a big deal. Like, I mean, you've seen these kids on ESPN, right? If that doesn't say, that's swaggy, right? That's just like, they're just like, 
in front of the microphone, right? And so my parents took me out of school, took a day off of work, and we drove all the way across the flatlands of Dakota to, to be nestled underneath the huge, bright, big shadows of the state capitol in Bismarck, right? This is just like, this is amazing. Like, whoa, mom, that story has five stories. Like, that building has five stories to it. It's like huge, right? So we go in the floor, and we're having the state geography bee, and I walked in there, and I thought that I was a geography kingpin, but I had never seen the kind of encyclopedic, nerdy knowledge that you've seen in that room. Like, everyone's walking around. I go up to the front, and I stand there, and they say things like, name for us 14 of the tributaries that run into the river Euphrates, right? And I'm, I'm sitting there stunned, and all these kids around me are guffawing. Like, <laughs> he only wants 14. There's 27, if you really wanted to know, <laughs> right? And they're like, they're like pushing up, right? Like, those are the kind of kids that are in the room. They've just been dominating geography since they could walk. Like, this is their thing. And I'm like leaning into the microphone, and I'm like, could you answer the question for me, sir? Right? Not repeat the question. Like, well, I just, I don't know. I think my entire visit was a grand total of like 12 minutes. And I walked out hanging my head. And I was like, Mom and Dad, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I know this cost gas and a hotel room. And like, we went over, and turns out I'm a failure of geography. Right? But the idea here, right, is of course that the geography matters. The geography matters to some degree. And there isn't really a good segue from that story, except to, to share my shame. Except to share my shame, right? And when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, like, Luke's given a geography lesson. Those who are around and listening and reading and those who would have got the first copy of Acts, they would have been thinking about the significance of the fact that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and when they surveyed the globe, they thought, yeah, he nailed it. All the way about from east all the way to west, all the nations come together. And so, yes, significance of law-giving, and yes, significance of the harvest. But it seems best to hang our hats on the idea, the reason that the Holy Spirit comes in this moment is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people everywhere, and all the nations are gathered. When they were all together, the Holy Spirit comes. Not just the 120, but there's symbolism here of God self-giving to the whole, all the nations. And so that's one of the reasons that he comes. Verse 2 gives us a really fun word. And this word tells us a lot about the Holy Spirit. And I think that we need to consider it very, very clearly. And that word is strictly suddenly. The Spirit of God comes suddenly. It's evident in our text that when the Spirit comes, there is suddenness about it. In other words, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, but they did not know when the Spirit was coming. They could not command Him. Did any of you have the experience of waiting on an iPhone 6 last week, right? And when, the, when the, the mail guy arrived, you may have felt like it came in suddenness, except for the fact that you had refreshed FedEx.com 97 times that day, right? Like, where, where is it? There's a tracking number. There's a tracking number. That's not what's happening here. They're all together, and suddenly there comes from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Suddenly. They did not have a tracking device in the Holy Spirit. It wasn't one of those video games where you have to like press A long enough for the green circle to fill up and then finally whatever takes place happens. Peter wasn't going and checking on the Holy Spirit, like looking out the window, coming back and saying, guys, it looks like he's in the mesosphere. Uh, probably this time tomorrow. Probably this time tomorrow he'll be here. Uh, don't worry, he won't be late. God's good about these things. We know when he's coming tomorrow. Suddenly, 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 and that tells us something very, very theological about the Holy Spirit, and that's this simple fact. The Holy Spirit is free. He is free and sovereign because He is God, and God is free and sovereign. This means that we cannot coerce. This means that we cannot command. It means that we cannot press a button on a vending machine and say, we've made the right button presses, God. Now, Spirit, come. And this is the way the Holy Spirit has always been. The Holy Spirit is God, and therefore He is free. And when he is given, and when he comes, it is always a gift to be met with gratitude, not with expectancy. Not with, I shouldn't say expectancy, not with sort of a, a kind of muttering of about time. I deserve this. 
the Holy Spirit is free. And isn't that what we've learned all the way through? John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You remember the story well. It's where we get the phrase born again from. But what is some of the things that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in that moment? In John chapter 3, look at verse 8 specifically. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The implication from Jesus is that the Spirit blows where it wishes. When we are dealing with the Holy Spirit, one of the ways I believe to grieve him is to treat him like a Jedi force. Right? Like, oh, I think it's about time that we bring in the Holy Spirit now. We've done all we can and religious, religious experience and rituals. We've, that's done enough, but I think it's about time now. Let's call him down. Like, right? I think it's grieving to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes suddenly because he is as free as God is free. And that means not only theologically that we assign to him freedom and sovereignty and free reign, it only means theologically that we are at his beck and call, not the other way around. But it also means that practically we need to be very careful about the way that we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. It means that we should be careful about putting Holy Spirit revival on the calendar, right? And I know that many of us grew up in traditions Many of us grew up in traditions of faith where it was like we scheduled revival from like October 2nd till the 4th at 6 p.m. And then I always wondered, like, I guess we're just done with revival at 6, right? Like, I mean, the, the Vikings are on or whatever, right? Like, well, I guess I don't know why revival's coming until 6. Why not keep that thing going, right? And sometimes they'd kept it going at all costs. The idea is that no matter what we do, there's no amount of con- no, coercion. There's no amount of scheduling. There's no amount of passionate preaching. I could preach and pound this pulpit like this so much so that people are getting spittle on them, right? Just fiery. And my fiery preaching cannot command the Holy Spirit to come down. And you can pray with tears and weep and go through chaos and confusion, and you can never lift your eyes to heaven and say, Holy Spirit, now obey me. Spirit of God is not coerced. And I think this is important for us to be careful about. That does not mean that God is not free and gracious and good to give His Spirit. It does not mean that the Spirit is begrudging. He's coming in fullness. He's coming generously. It does not mean that you can't be confident that you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. It simply means that when you embrace and receive and and think about the Holy Spirit, you are dealing with God. And there's always a measure of carefulness and a measure of sort of of caution to never forget that dealing with God, you're dealing with someone who is ultimately free. That's one of the things that we learn about the Spirit of God. Another thing that we learn about Him, of course, in this particular text, who can't help but notice that when the Holy Spirit comes, He comes in power, right? The Holy Spirit comes in power. There's a bunch of symbolism here. Symbolism for Him coming in power. Suddenly, when the Holy Spirit comes, and suddenly, what happens? There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There's an important word in this verse, right? There's an important word, like. Like a mighty mighty rushing wind. I'm sure that the the disciples were grateful for fourth grade grammar, right, at that point. Because can you imagine being in a room and a mighty rushing wind actually coming in? It's not like a hurricane descended into the room, but it was a sound like one. Similes save lives, right? That's what we're learning. Like a mighty Russian wind. We're going to see the same thing in a moment when we talk about fire. Tongues as of fire, like and as. These are the similes that we're given. But there came from heaven a sound like a mighty Russian wind. This is to indicate to us that when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in power. There's a sense in which the Holy Spirit's work is quiet and secretive, Right? He sustains us at all times. He creates a link between our souls in a mystical kind of union with Jesus. He allows us communication and intercession with God that we wouldn't have otherwise. And there's a lot of times when we believe and think about the Holy Spirit as kind of a secretive, behind-the-scenes sort of work. But we should never fall victim to the idea that somehow that means the Holy Spirit is weak. The Spirit of God is not going around the earth saying like, I wish I was more powerful. Like, 
man, the Spirit of God is not seeing problems on the earth and saying to themselves, this needs a tornado. Why did God make me just a breath? There's not a massive problem and the Spirit of God comes and is like, right? Like, it's not just, I wish I could could do something. The Spirit comes in power. Not just any wind. Wind has been the consistent word in the Bible for the Spirit all the way through. The Greek versions of the Old Testament and then all the way in through the New Testament, wind and spirit are the same word. There's pneuma. And there's a reason that he's using this as an illustration. I don't know exactly what that sound was like, but I'm sure it communicated to them power. Have you ever been in a place where there's a mighty rushing wind? I grew up, like I said, in North Dakota. We didn't have a whole lot of tornadoes and things like that. When I went to do missionary work, we lived just outside Fayetteville in Arkansas. And uh, the missionary base that I was at, we lived in a barn. And I would say it was a converted barn, but that would mean they fixed it up. Um, it was like, uh, it was more like just a barn. The first night that I went there, there's no air conditioning, and it's, it's September 2nd, and I'm huddling in, and I'm at the top bunk. I'm staring at these just open wood beams in this barn. There were ants crawling on me, and I'm sweating. And I'm not ashamed to say I'm crying. <laughs> I'm just like, God, get me out of here. What am I doing with my life? And there were many times that fall when storms would whip up, right? Oklahoma, that corner, northwest, northwest Arkansas, storms that were amazing. And I guarantee you that when you started to hear a mighty rushing wind outside, there were times when the wind sounded like, okay, this barn is a goner. <laughs> like, this thing's going to fall down. And I guarantee that I would go to my friends who grew up in the area and just be like, tell me exactly what a tornado sounds like. I need to know because I want to be ahead of it when it comes, right? And many of you probably know when you've been in storms like that, a tornado sounds like like a train, like a train coming. And so you're the disciples, and you're waiting on the Spirit to come, and a sound like a train. What's that supposed to communicate about the Holy Spirit and His work? It's a little different than if He came in a whisper. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, oftentimes for us, because He works very discreetly sometimes and silently he sustains sometimes we settle into this idea that that means the holy spirit is weak and kind of wimpy he's he's sort of the effeminate side of of christianity right the spirit comes and he comes in power there's a mighty sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house and then more than that not just wind being a symbol for it but fire and jesus himself had said this right jesus had, himself had said that there was going to be a baptism in the Holy Spirit and they were going to be baptized with fire. John the Baptist had, pro- had prophesied this as well. He said, I baptize you with water, but a day is coming when one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Consuming fire. Fire has been an illustration of God all through the text of Scripture. Moses does not go to the green leaf bush, right? He goes to the burning bush. Fire. Powerful fire. Self-sustaining fire. And fire comes, and it's not just wind, and it's not just this appearance of fire as fire. I said fire comes. Similes save lives. Not real fire. They weren't like, uh, they weren't like those little toys. Anyone have those little toys with the crazy hair straight up when you were a kid? Or trolls or something like that they were, right? They weren't like actual hair of fire. Like when it wasn't there running around like that, right? Like as fire, like as fire, rested on each of them. And it wasn't just wind and it wasn't just fire, but it was speech. There was speech that came. There's power in a miracle that takes place. This miracle takes place. When the Holy Spirit comes, he brings about awe and amazement. There is miraculous speaking forth of the works of God. So much so that all these people who have come and have gathered... They come and they sort of like lose their political correctness all at once, right? Did you notice that? Can you read between the lines on this phrase? Are they not, are not all these Galileans? Are not all these speaking Galileans? Anyone else have some Galilean history and you're just like really offended? <laughs> just like, come on. I mean, what they're basically saying like, what, Galileans aren't capable of this, right? These guys must be stupid. Like apparently Rosetta Stone did not originate in Galilee, right? This is like not, these people who are not known for their linguistic skills apparently, 
And so not only was the miracle amazing because it was speaking in real languages, but it was also a miracle because these guys probably shouldn't have been able to do that. And so they all come, and it leaves them in amazement and astonishment. Why? Because the power of God has descended on these men. It's the same reaction that the signs and wonders of the New Testament had all the time. The man gets his legs healed, and he's running around and jumping and rejoicing, and it says that they were all in awe. When the power of God comes, it is nothing if it is not stupefying, right? That's the message that we're getting. The Holy Spirit has come in power, and everyone is around slack-jawed. Like, what? Oh, huh? Right? That's what they're saying. It says it a couple of times so that we get it. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished. Verse 6, they were bewildered, if you want another word in there. And then again in verse 12, what were they? They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, why? Because the power of God has come. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Power. Now, many of you are probably already asking questions, and you know that the concept of tongues has been a divisive issue in the church for a lot of years. We don't know what to make of it. In this particular instance, we want to let, as we go through Acts, we want to let the context of the passage that we're studying provide our instruction on where to go. There will be other times in the coming weeks when we get later in Acts where the idea of tongues is going to be more troublesome for us. And we're going to have to say, okay, this doesn't seem to be serving the purpose of other nations hearing it. This isn't a native language thing, maybe. And we'll say to ourselves, now wait a minute, I thought my theology said that the tongues thing came just that one time in Acts chapter 2, and then I don't know what to do with it after that. And there will be times where we'll answer those questions. The gift of this particular moment, though, is it's extremely clear that these are real, known languages. The word glossa here, language. It's the same word that's consistent all the way through Revelation. When, when John looks out and sees people from every tribe, tongue, people, and language, glossa, same thing here. This is language, right? And it seems clear to us, even the people who come to gather say, we hear them speaking in our native language. This is a gift, a miracle of missionary proclamation. That's what tongues is, at least in this particular instance. And I know there's more to that, and I know there's questions, and people will say, what in the world? What about 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? And what about Acts chapter 8? And how do we deal with all that? And I agree, and we're going to get there. For now, though, I think we need to do what we need to rest where the text leaves us in awe at the power of God who has power over even the tongue and power over languages. And not only power over the things, but he moves so that every native language would hear the gospel and the works of God in their voice. That is an amazing gift. The last thing we see revealed about the Spirit. So we've seen that he comes suddenly because he's free, we've seen that he comes powerfully in wind and fire and speech and miracles. We also notice, and this will get us to the, to the next section, he comes generously. When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in fullness. You notice how many times words like full and fill and all and every are in this text? They were all together in one place. It filled the entire house where they were seating. In verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Devout men from every nation. And over and over and over again, even when they're mocked, even when they're mocked for being drunk at the end, right? They are filled with new wine. This idea of fullness is all over the text. When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes generously. And that is going to lead us to this question. If this is the Spirit that we see, how do we receive this Holy Spirit? What did it look like for these disciples to receive the gift of the revealed Holy Spirit? And the first thing that we see, to give language to it, one of the first acts of wisdom, I think an old Chinese proverb says, one of the first steps of wisdom is learning to call things by their right names. So we give names to things. What does it mean and look like to receive the Holy Spirit? In this particular section, it seems like to receive the Holy Spirit means to be filled. That's what it says. When the Holy Spirit came, it filled the whole room. And in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So filling, filling seems to be the particular Word And again, I noted it already, the others mocked, said they are filled with new wine. And this is going to be a consistent phrase throughout the New Testament to describe what it looks like to receive the Holy Spirit. I think this helps us to see that there is a kind of otherness to this. We surrender, we position ourselves, we ask God for the Holy Spirit, but when He comes, He fills us. He fills us. 
It's an interesting thing, though, because we're also going to see in the rest of the book that there starts to be different phrases for what it looks like to receive the Holy Spirit. Filling, baptism of the Spirit. In fact, Jesus himself has used the phrase baptism in Acts chapter 1. Know what he says in verse 5. John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So does anyone doubt the fact that what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is what Jesus was talking about? You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, he says. And then Luke is not careful at all and never once uses the word baptized with the Spirit in chapter 2. And so it seems like what we get introduced to, rather than a very narrow conception, rather than like a systematic theology way of reading a text and saying like, okay, Luke, you need an editor here, rather than some of the divisiveness that has filled the church throughout the ages about when does the baptism of the Spirit come and how does it come and is the filling a one-time thing and do you have enough of it now or do you need more later and how does that all work? It seems like already in the first two chapters that Luke is using words interchangeably for the same experience of, of receiving a fullness of the Spirit. And I want you to note that not only are the words starting to become interchangeably, there's a flexible metaphor going on here of what it looks like to receive the Holy Spirit. And I think that's going to help us. Because as we go through, and as you have conversations with friends, you might wonder and say, what does this mean? If Jesus said to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, I certainly want that. But I talked with my friend, and he said, I certainly don't have that. So what do I do? Right? It might be confusing to you. It seems like already, from Jesus' mouth and from Luke's, he's using terms, different words, to describe similar experiences. Not only different words to similar experiences, but I want you to note at different times in the disciples' life, the same word and the same experience is used again. We know that in Acts chapter 2, is Peter in the room? This is a rhetorical question, of course. He is, right? Peter's in the room. How many of them were filled with the Holy Spirit? All of them. So they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter has the Holy Spirit. And yet we see Luke pointing out in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. I want you to show, I want to show you this. Peter receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You could say that he becomes a Christian at that point. God gives himself in fullness to him. And yet, just a few chapters later, Peter stands to preach, to speak again. He speaks against the opposition of those who would say, you cannot speak in Jesus' name. Then Peter, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's only been two chapters, so some might say that Luke is simply reminding us that Christians have the Holy Spirit and are full of the Holy Spirit. I think that's possible. But it seems like to me what he's describing is an experience of the Spirit that allows Peter in that moment boldness. An experience in that moment that allows a fullness for Peter to experience something that maybe for the last two chapters since he was filled initially hasn't been perfectly consistent. So it seems like not only is there a filling at conversion, but there's an experience of it. And I keep using the word experience because I do not believe that the Holy Spirit ever leaves a Christian. God is not in the business of giving and taking and giving and taking, but he does seem gracious at times to give evidence in a believer's life that he is there in more fullness and that he is there in a way that's giving grace and giving grace specifically for a moment even. This is a task when Peter needs to be bold and say... Basically, you do what you have to do. Kill, murder, imprison, whatever you have to do, but I will declare what I've seen and what I know to be true. So Peter, at his conversion, filled. Later preaching, filled. And it's not just Peter. We'll move over again. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. The apostle Paul is converted. Saul is converted. He becomes Paul. Note verse 17 in Acts chapter 9. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful conversion story. Paul's going to reiterate this story numerous times, sometimes in fullness all the way through the rest of Acts. He loves to tell his conversion story. And how is his conversion described? He was prayed for and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But I wonder if we see the same kind of language that happened with Peter. Remember, Peter was filled when he was converted at Pentecost as well. Look at Acts 13, verse 9. 13, verse 9. We see preaching. Saul is 
preaching. But Saul, who was also called Paul, comma, and what does Luke point out? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked intently at him. This is a moment when Paul needed grace in a significant way. He needed empowerment in a specific way. He needed boldness for the moment. And his experience of the Holy Spirit seems like it comes in fullness. This does not mean that between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit has been removed from Paul, but something is going on here. There's flexible language that's being used. And what I don't want us to do as we go through Acts is to fall in on a narrow systematic a systematic theology, theology approach that says this is exactly the word that we must use for this experience and then we have to use this, this word for this kind of experience or it only happens at this moment and not at that moment. It seems like there's flexibility in the way these things are described and I hope that makes sense. You'll see all the way through the rest of the book. Filling, filling, stood and was filled. It's also why in Ephesians Paul can write to the church. He's writing to Christians who have the Holy Spirit. And he can say to them, do not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. He uses it as a command. And a Christian might legitimately say to him, how dare you? How dare you, Paul, say that I need more of the Spirit than what I have already? I've been redeemed and united to Christ, and I have all of the benefits of his life and his death and his resurrection. How dare you say be filled? And I think that what we're going to see that God wants us to pursue and seek and surrender ourselves to an experience of his spirit and fullness, to a recognition, to an awareness, so that the spirit of God is constantly sustaining you. Do you know that, Christian? Do you know that apart from the spirit of God, you have no hope? He is sustaining you in every moment, whether you notice it or not. But there are sweet, sweet times when God opens your eyes just a little more clearly and you become aware of your utter dependence on the Spirit of God. I believe that in some sense, that's what Paul means. Be filled. Be filled. So more than just receiving and filling, there's some evidence, right? You might ask yourself, and this is a big deal. The New Testament says, test the spirits to see if they're true. Here's some good tests for the Spirit of God. Is the Spirit of God working and real? Okay? First one, unity. Unity and peace. The Spirit of God brings unity. Did you note in the text what's happening? When Pentecost came and they were all together in one place. And when the huge commotion came and the mighty rushing wind and all the speaking, what happened? At, the sound of the multi- at that sound, the multitude came together. The Spirit of God is a drawing spirit. The Spirit of God is a spirit of peace and of unity. No one ever prays for the Holy Spirit of grumbling. Right? Oh God, send your spirit that strife may come. Oh God, bring divisiveness over inane issues. Oh God, divide us so that our witness might be hampered, right? God's not in that business. He does not send a spirit of disunity and divisiveness, right? It does not mean that we'll be conflict-free. Life is not conflict-free. We're promised opposition and suffering, but it does mean that one of the tests, one of the signs is that you increasingly, if you're receiving the Holy Spirit, increasingly you are praying prayers of unity. You are longing to look around at the church and say, let's sing with one voice, shall we? What a shame it is when Christians for so many generations over divisiveness, over tempo of music and lyrics and song and style and instrumentation, we are one in Christ. It's just that I can't stand in the same room and sing the same song as that guy. The Spirit of God is a spirit of unity. More than that, he moves people to pray. The Spirit of God enlightens our need for Jesus Christ and our connection to him in ways that we otherwise were unaware. The Spirit of God always moves us toward pray, toward praying, toward pray. Toward pray more now. So, the Spirit of God comes. It makes you think to yourself, you know what, I've been trying my own self-effort for long enough. The Spirit of God comes into someone's life and they look back over the course of their existence and they say, you know what, I try to be holy on my own and it's just not cutting it. They look back over the course of their existence and they say, you know what, I'm sinful in ways that I never knew. I'm needy and it drives them to pray. We're going to see that over and over and over again in Acts. And then overall, I think in general, the Spirit of God, when he comes, brings a sense of assurance in your soul, a kind of quiet, resting confidence. And that's one of the major gifts of the Spirit. We already saw it 
this huddled mass of chaotic, confused disciples hiding in the room and waiting are given boldness so that they throw open the windows and proclaim and tell the works of God. And that assurance basically starts with an understanding deep down in your heart that you are God's child. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What confidence you might have. What boldness you might have. What assurance you might have if you would wake tomorrow and God would give you a spirit deep down in your soul that cries out, Abba, Father, I am purchased by his blood. I am his own. I am secure. I have been made right with God. Can you imagine the kind of risk that might be motivated in our lives? Can you imagine the kind of putting down a fear of man? Can you imagine the kind of anxiety and the kind of self-righteousness that might be combated if we're given that kind of spirit? At its core, the Spirit of God is a spirit of assurance that brings confidence and boldness. It brought confidence and boldness in speech. And the last thing I want to note is that it brought confidence and assurance in worship. What were the things that these disciples were speaking? They weren't just going out and speaking apologetically. They're not just going out to win arguments. They're going out, their voices are lifted to worship. The people hear them declaring the mighty works of God. You will know that the Holy Spirit has come upon you when you forget yourself and you forget the music and you forget the surroundings and all the insecurities go away and you say, in spirit and in truth, I'm, I'm worshiping you, God. I want you and nothing else. Worship results when the Holy Spirit of God comes. This is important for us practically because many of us pray for boldness and we want to be winsome and we want to witness but let me say this as emphatically as I possibly can say it. God does not give his Holy Spirit so that you can win apologetic arguments only. The Spirit of God is not a vending machine for you to seem smart with your friends and not come off as a misunderstood bigot. That's not the reason the Spirit of God comes. He does give boldness at times, but the Holy Spirit of God takes from Jesus Christ and gives to you so that you erupt in worship to God. The Holy Spirit of God plants a delight in the person of God deep in your soul. And that is where transformation begins. You worship confidently. Whereas before you hesitated and you came in your guilt and your shame. You came to church out of religious duty. You sort of meandered in and thought, I know where I should be, but my heart's just not there. I know all the right theology, but I've been walking in a way that has been been completely impoverished and it's completely full of guilt and shame and so you can barely lift your eyes to God. You know you should pray to him but you feel like you need to clean yourself up first. And when you meet the spirit of God all that goes away. And you recognize your need and you say God I desire you and you only. That is the worship that erupts when the spirit of God comes. There's a lot here and I can't wait because Peter preaches. <laughs> next the next section. Let me pray for you.